0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Twins lead 4-0 as you go to the Mariners' half of the seventh inning. It'll be Griffey, Buhner, and then Martinez. Well, all eyes are on this young man right now as he stands in. Griffey 0-2 tonight. And the first pitch from Banks is welcome. There it goes! See you later. Upper deck. Griffey has tied the major league record. Holy cow. The kid has done it. Home runs in eight consecutive games.
1: Enjoy the tour, son. Enjoy the
0: tour. He hasn't got a smile on his face yet. But the crowd, which has not been announced, has to be around 30,000 fans. jammed down there. He can't help but grin and junior waving to somebody behind home plate and that may be Melissa his lovely wife as junior has done it and tomorrow night don't you dare miss it you'll take a shot at becoming the first man in history to hit a home run in nine consecutive games they're asking for the kid to
1: come out and greet the audience and take a curtain call History on Junior's home run. He does come out, and the game continues. Here's Buhner. We've, we've actually asked that Curtis
2: just play that in loop for the entire segment. Uh, Aaron Goldsmith, Dan Wilson, and Gary Hill, Jr., kind enough to be joined by uh, the man who made one of the, uh, the great calls in franchise history, Ron Fairley. Uh, Ron, we, we are so eager to talk to you about so many different things, but since we just heard that, I, I have to ask, what, what goes through your mind when you hear that highlight once again?
3: Well, that was pretty exciting. I mean, good golly. I mean, and there wasn't any doubt about the ball leaving the yard. I mean, when Junior hit it, I mean, it could have been 400 feet away and it would have cleared it easily. But, uh, yeah, that was that was pretty I mean, hitting home runs in eight consecutive games. And uh, the thing I do remember that, then Junior came up again. I made Dave Niehaus have the call because I think if Junior would have hit it in nine consecutive games, I think it should have been uh, Dave Niehaus' call for it.
2: So, are you saying that you actually like it was your scheduled inning, and during the commercial, yes, you said. Yeah, when Junior you... when Junior came up the
3: following game to hit home runs and set the record, I made Dave Niehaus uh, call his at bat. He wasn't going to do it, but I said, "Well, there's going to be a lot of dead air."
2: <laughs> <laughs> and did not Junior come remarkably close to going in nine straight games?
3: Well, well. You, yeah, he did. Uh, obviously, he didn't do it. Right. But uh, to hit home runs in in that many consecutive games, it's uh, it's quite remarkable. I
2: feel like in the ninth game, he had legend holds that he hit a, a very loud out uh, back to the track, or even right up against the wall. But uh, Ron Fairley is joining us now. The the first of two segments that uh, Red is kind enough to uh, have with us this evening here on the Hot Stove Show. And uh, Ron, you've you've obviously been a, a pretty busy man. We are we're looking at the cover of your new book a fairly at bat, my 50 years in baseball uh, from the batter's box, to the broadcast booth. Uh, Can you tell us about the labor of love of of writing this book? And you have led one of the great baseball lives. There's plenty of good stuff in here.
3: Well, you know, you know, for years, you know, I told stories on the air and some I could tell some I couldn't. (laughs) Nevertheless, I had a lot of people that said that, gee, you should, you should write the book. And I said, no, I wasn't going to do that. And then, I got tired of playing golf so much during my retirement. I said, well, maybe I, I ought to sit down and start writing. And uh, sure enough, I, I started from the very beginning and started filling in holes and remembering games and uh, looked back on some really important games that I played in, and I started writing about them. And the next thing you know, I, I got into it. It took me about a year and a half to, to, to finish the book, but uh and I found uh, a writer that would uh, that helped me. Uh, I wrote the book and then turned it over to him and he reorganized some of the stories. But uh, it turned out I, I wanted to have something that someone could get a laugh, laugh out of. Uh, it's not a Jim Boughton book. It's not, it's not a tell-all thing type uh, type of a book. It's it's things that that you would never read about in accounts of the game the following day. I mean, things that were said on the field in the dugout. Or when the game was over, that uh, that people will might get a a out of it at night, and I think I did a pretty good job.
2: You mentioned Dave a moment ago. What was it like broadcasting with Dave Niehaus through the years? Well, Dave. It, well, first
3: of all, you have to understand Dave loved the Mariners. Hmm. I mean, he was he was one hundred percent behind those guys. And the thing that was funny was is that the things that Dave Dave would say when he was off the air. That I got a big, I got a great big kick out of, but he was such a fan that he had to bring somebody in from the bullpen and we'll break for commercial time up and we'll be right back. And then Dave would say, "You got on oh my wedding bringing that guy? I <laughs> hadn't got anybody out." You know, and then come back on the air and then, holy cow, here comes so and so What a great job you'd know, go, he would go just the completely other way around. But, but he would, he would, that would be one of the things. That and the other thing is. Dave did not have a very good sense of direction and in spring training for an example when we came out of Peoria there the the complex if you go to the right when you leave our booth you walk back into the the, into the press box when the game was over you go to the left to get on the elevators go down get in the parking lot take off and go wherever you're going to go for dinner i always waited for Dave to to leave the, the the booth first because about four or five times every spring, Dave would come out of, the, out of the booth, and he would go to the right, back into the press box, and I just let him go. And then I turn around and say, hey, Dave, this way. And then he always told me what I could go do to myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I got, I got a kick out of that. And I let it. Go. And I, 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 Dave and I had a lot of fun together. We really did.
2: Big red Dan Wilson here. And, and uh, I know. Hi, oh, how are you?
3: I'm fine. How have you been?
2: Doing very well, thank you. And I know over the course of, yeah. of, of my career I was lucky uh, to, to hear probably a lot of the stories that are in the book kind of firsthand, and I know right. that stories in baseball get passed down, and, and we love that. But, you know, looking back, are your are some of your better stories as a player or are they as a broadcaster? Where, where does it stack up uh, in, in terms of the, your stories that that uh, you come across in the book?
3: Well, I, I, there, I think there's a little bit of a mix, and I think more of them, now you can attest to uh, as a player. Yeah, I mean, I, I miss the clubhouse. Yeah, the, the 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 banter that goes on in in the in the clubhouse, and you know as well as I do what what guys do uh, on and off the field. That you you really get a a, a good chuckle at. Uh, and and if you have played on, and don't make what major league team you played on. Uh, every one of them have stories. In fact, from the very beginning of of, of baseball. There have been more characters that are involved in baseball, I think, than any other sport. They've been around longer, and uh, I just think that there are more characters, and the more people find out about them, the more you're going to have some fun. In fact, when the Cubs became a professional team, they did that back in 1876. That was the same time that Custer was at the Little Bighorn, Horn. Yes. kind of give you a baseball reference uh, as to when the Cubs got and We've had characters ever since then.
2: And they're relentless in that clubhouse.
3: Oh, well, yeah. I mean, mean, things that that went on in in the clubhouse and things, were some of the stuff was really good. And then sometimes it even transferred out onto the field. An example is that Koufax was pitching. You know, whenever he pitched, we had a pitcher on our ball club by the name of of Pete Rickard. And Pete was a left-handed pitcher and pitched the major leagues for about – Oh, 10 or 11 years, mostly with Baltimore. But when he was with the Dodgers, he was the long man in the bullpen. And the only time Pete would go out and have a few drinks would be the night before Kofax. <laughs> that, that Sandy was going to, you know, get knocked out in the second or third inning. Well, Pete went out this one, uh, one afternoon and lo and behold, Sandy got in trouble in the first inning and they got Pete up in the bullpen. And Sandy got out of the inning uh, in the second inning uh, Sandy went back out to the mound and he got in trouble again and Alston got him up for the second time and went out to the mound. That day I have to be playing first base and so when Alston got to the mound there were three of us that are standing there. He had Alston, Koufax, and myself and it was a hot day, temperature above 95 degrees and Alston looked at Sandy and he says, how do you feel? And Sandy says, better than the guy you have warming up. <laughs> 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 and that's when Austin just turned around and walked back on, on into the dugout. We eventually got hot. We scored some runs, and Sandy was the winning pitcher.
2: Ron Fairley. That our-
3: never appeared. That never appeared in the box score or anything you read <laughs> about the accounts of the game.
2: That's fantastic. Ron Fairley is our guest here on the Hot Stove. And uh, Ron, can you uh, describe for us, for those who have not had a chance to uh, pick up your book uh, quite yet, uh, Fairly at bat? Can you tell us and describe a little bit about this picture we see of? you and Dave in a camera well both wearing headsets with the one differentiator that Dave was wearing a batting helmet with his headset
3: <laughs> well Dave <laughs> Dave says I can't do the game from down there without a helmet and I said why not he says if the ball comes over there how am I going to get out of the way of it and I just said why don't you duck you know <laughs> But he, I, I had I had to laugh at him. We did not have a screen in front of us. so I mean the fact that he wore a helmet, that, it just it just looked kind of funny as far as I was concerned. But uh, like I said, we had we, Dave and I had a lot of laughs. One of the things that he did in spring training that I really got a chuckle out of was that he had he kept wearing every spring these old sandals, and they were old. They were getting to be kind of ratty, and so I kept mentioning to him, well, you ought to get a new pair. So finally one day. We went over after a ball game and we got the, a new pair of sandals. About two or three days later, we had to go to Scottsdale. And I picked him up at his apartment to go over to the, the ballpark. And I happened to notice he had one pair of new shoes and one old shoe on. <laughs> and I, I didn't say much, but I got to Scottsdale and I said, Dave, I said, I, I, like, I like your, your shoes. I, they really look sharp. And he looked down. He saw he had one old one on and one new one on. He says, "I got a." Before he looked down there, he said, "Man, I got a pair just like this back at the hotel." So, <laughs> I, I got a big out uh, of that because he didn't realize that he had one old one and on one new one on. So until he got to the ballpark, and then he was a little embarrassed.
2: No, until you said something. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he once again
3: he told me what I could do. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, well, this is just the start, Uh Ron- all, But we,
3: we, we all, it was all in It was all in fun. We, sure. we, we, laughed about stuff like that. So,
2: that's terrific. The uh,
3: other thing that Dave did, a, a couple of the post-game shows, uh, they decided that they wanted us to be on camera, and so we had to turn and 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 face the camera where the the field was in the background, and Dave, in the process of putting on his jacket and. And and putting his headset on and picking up the hand mic, he picked my microphone up, <laughs> and so we did the post game show and I didn't say one word because <laughs> Dave had my microphone. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there, there was there was another time where we did the post game show and we were supposed to alternate. Dave does the first play, I do the second play, and Dave the third, and I do four, so on. And there were about six or seven plays. We'd had highlights of the game and Dave was in a role he he did he did every one of the plays <laughs> and during we sta- and I'm standing there with a smile on my face just waiting for an opening and then some guy in the truck would say to me jump in there Ron and I couldn't do anything and the next guy would say Ron shut up you're talking too much <laughs> I had a- I had a rough time trying to keep a straight face, and Dave's doing the highlights to all of these games, and he and there was no opening. And that was when uh, one of the guys down the truck said, when Dave wants the post-game show to be over, the big boy is headed to the bar. And the post-game show is going to be over real quick. And that's just about the way he, he did it sometimes. And, and, but he was very good. I mean, he was never stuck for words, and he was always – Always right on cue with everything. The other thing Dave, Dave did that I got a chuckle out of, he kept a a, a little like a like a timer that was had sand in it that you turn over like a three minute egg thing. And that was he would put that on mind him to repeat the score when the the little glass was empty. I never saw him turn it over. <laughs> <pulled> <laughs> 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 he had that thing sticking out there and never turned that thing
2: over. Uh, uh, right. these Red, these are just priceless stories. Uh, we're going to take a quick time out. Uh, we've got more with Ron Fairley here, The Hot Stove Show, coming up in just a moment.
3: I can't say in my own mind, honestly, that I think I was the best hitter. But I said, if they'll put me in a group, of Ruth and Gehrig and Simmons and Fox and DeMaggio and Greenberg and Heilman and Cobb, I said, that'll be good enough for me. And uh, I think that uh,
0: that's the way I really feel.
2: Happy to have you back with us once again on the hot stove, Aaron Goldsmith, Dan Wilson, and Gary Hill.
0: That was a piece of interview from
2: Dave Niehaus and Ted Williams. We're here with Ron Farrelly. And, Red, you have a portion in your book about Ted Williams. Is he the greatest hitter in baseball history, do you think?
3: Well, you know, I'll tell you how good he was. There were a couple of managers that would not allow his their pitchers to watch him take batting practice. Now, what do you what do you think that does? I mean, it was too it was it was too demoralizing. Ted knew the game of hitter versus pitcher better than any player I have ever been around. Ted was also the most domineering type of person. I mean, he was John Wayne on steroids. Uh, I mean. There was nothing that he did not know about the game. I'll give, I'll give an example. In the 1959 All-Star game, it was played in the Coliseum in Los Angeles. And in that game, Drysdale threw a pitch to Ted in, in on his hands. And Ted popped the ball up about 430 feet away. The right field fence in the Coliseum was 440 feet. And they ran back. The after ran back and caught the ball. About 430 feet away, that ended the inning, and Don had a smile on his face like, whoa, whoa, I thought I thought it was gone. Ten years later, Ted is managing the Washington Senator, and they're playing in Vero Beach at Holman Stadium in spring training, and Don and I are standing in right field. The bus pulls up. Ted gets off the bus, and we walk over to say hi to him. And Don walks up and says, hi, Ted. He didn't say hello. How do you do? Or you know what? He says, what were you laughing at in the 1959 All-Star game when I popped up that lousy pitch you threw me? And Don had to think about it for a second. He says, you know, I, I threw the pitch, and he said, I kind of I smiled because when you hit it, I thought the ball was gone. Ted says, I thought I got enough of it too, but I just wanted to know, what, what why were you laughing? And that bothered him so much. Then when we finished talking, we went back into the outfield area, and Don turned to me and he says, Ron, I've had a lot of batters swing at pitches that, that I've thrown, but that was the most vicious swing anyone ever took off of me. I guess kind of, it's just a side story, but Ted, Ted knew the game of hitter versus pitcher better than anybody else. Bob Lemon will attest to that. All of fame pitcher. He says he would got on, he got on the batting, you know, on the, on the, on the mound and started his wind up when he got about halfway through his delivery. He knew what, and Ted knew, he knew that Ted knew what was coming. I never fooled him on a pitch, and he was he was tough to tough to fool uh, on anything. So, yeah, I look back, and when you talk to guys that, that had to pitch to Ted Williams, uh, boy, they didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. And he, like I said, I mean, he helped me out one time uh, when he asked me, who was the toughest pitcher in the National League for you to hit? And I said, Juan Marshall. And he said, well, what makes him so tough? I mean, Ted was starting to get mad at Juan. And he'd never met him. And he says, how how, how does he get shot? And I said, any way he wants to. And then Ted's response was, why do you let him? I said, what do you mean? Well, he says, what does he throw? I said, he throws a fastball, curveball, slider, and and changeup. And he says, take two of those pitches away for me. Either look, fastball, slider, something coming to play hard, or something that's coming soft, changeup, or a curveball. Change the odds. You just improved yourself 50 percent, and if you get the pitch, hit it, hit it hard somewhere. Well, you know what? It's kind of funny about that, is it started working. I mean, he says you're an out man anyway, so try to put the odds a little bit more in your favor. <laughs> so I tried that, and sure enough, I, I started getting some hits off of Juan Marichal. But those are the kind of things that, uh, that that Ted did. I mean, you'd have to be around him to to understand how domineering he is. If you put Ted. In the op in, in, an, uh, in a room with, say, the top 75 executives in, in, the, in the country, within a half an hour, he would dominate the room. And that was just the way that he was.
2: Red, you made the all-star team in 1973. The NL team that you played on, Joe Morgan, Hank Aaron, Johnny Bench, <laughs> Willie Mays, Willie Stargell, what was that clubhouse like? Well,
3: <laughs> well, first of all, you had future Hall of Famers all over the place uh, in there. And, and their goal was we have to do, they were for the national league. They wanted to win. And uh, that's, that's just the way that they played. They played that hard, but they're all good guys. I still see uh, Johnny bench every now and then I call Mays every year during Christmas and wish him a happy new year and, and a Merry Christmas. Uh, some of the guys that, uh, that uh, I played uh, against for so many years. They're not around anymore, and I, I miss them. But uh, they were they were regular guys that had more talent than uh, than you can ever imagine in that one room. I mean, good golly, who would want to pitch to a lineup like that?
2: <laughs> that uh,
3: they had so much power up and down the lineup.
2: Ron, uh, I have to ask you about this because – you're, there just are not many people who could talk about these players that Gary has brought up. You you were you were nineteen when you broke into the big leagues. Nineteen years old.
3: I I think I just turned twenty.
2: Okay. Uh, less than two weeks into your big league career, you faced the Cardinals and you faced Stan Musial. Now it wasn't Stan in his prime. This isn't this, but it's still Stan the man. This is still we talked about Ted. This is still one of the greatest hitters of all time. Can you remember what it was like two weeks into your major league career? and you're facing a guy that I have to imagine you had seen and heard of uh, for your whole life, and now you're right there. You're sharing a field with him at Dodger Stadium. I, I just would, I would love to know what that was like, if you can remember all the way back to uh, two weeks into your big league career in 1958.
3: I'll, I'll tell you, 1959, we were in St. Louis, and Stan was struggling. He was not, he was not, not doing well. He was not Stan Musial. And uh, we went to Sportsman Park in St. Louis when I, I went early because I heard that he was going to take extra batting practice. So I want to go out there and watch him. So he got the cage and he hit a few balls and he, you know, hit a lazy fly ball, hit a ground ball here. I mean, he wasn't, he was off a little bit and he turned around and he looked at me and said, Ron, what am I doing wrong? And I, I kind of started to laugh. Musial is going to ask me what he's doing <laughs> wrong. You know, I, Stan, the only thing I can think of is it's not 8 o'clock yet. It wasn't game time. And that night he hit a pair of doubles and drove in three runs. But I got a kick out of that. And then that same series I talked to him, he says, Ron, people come out to the ballpark to watch me hit home runs. But he says for the next two weeks I'm going to concentrate on hitting the ball up the middle and the other way until I get my timing down once again. And so I followed him. For the next two weeks, Stan hit only one home run, uh, but he was batting 435. He told me when we took batting practice that day, I think I could hit 400, but people come out to the ballpark to watch me try to hit home runs. But in that two-week period, Stan hit 435 because I kept track of that. And I've never, I've never forgotten that. And he got his timing back because in the next week or two after that, he hit a half a dozen home runs. And he had his timing back and was was going at it again. The one thing that Ted said, or not Ted, but Stan said was to pull the ball constantly, your timing has to be too perfect. And you have to be able to hit the ball up the middle, the other way, occasionally just to keep your timing right. And the more I thought about that, it made a lot of sense. Today we see these guys that are up there hitting and they're, they pull everything, pull everything. Well, their timing has to be too perfect, and the guys that are dead pull hitters, they they're not going to hit for very much of a high average. The only guy that I can think of that was a pull hitter that hit for a high average was Ted Williams. I mean, Ted says you can take the whole ball club and put them over there. I'll still do <laughs> And and
4: and
3: and that that was Ted. That that's that's the that was his mindset. In fact, he had one game in in, in Fenway Park. Where he decided just to prove the point, he had two or three doubles off the green monster, and said, "See, I can go the other way if I want to." But he says they, people don't come out and watch me hit singles or hit the ball the other way. So that was it. He pulled the ball, and he, like I said, you can put the whole the entire field, uh, the entire lineup, and the old time dug up. You put everybody in the outfield. I don't care. I'll still hit it.
2: Red, we got to see. Obviously, Lou Piniella as a manager here for a long time in Seattle. But can you tell us about Lou Piniella, the player?
3: Well, Lou was, it was pretty much the same kind of player as he was a manager. He's very fiery, was explosive. Uh, Lou was not an easy out. Now you look at Lou's numbers, and I mean he's right there in the middle of the pack. But what you don't see is how many games he won, or how many times he moved runners from first to third or drove a run in. He was, hit the ball up the middle, hit the ball the other way quite a bit. Did not have the kind of power that you expect to see in a guy in the Yankee lineup. But Lou was the kind of guy that you had to be really careful with him because he could beat you. I mean, you can make him look bad, and then all of a sudden you get in the crucial part of the ballgame. Bam! That's when he got his hits. It's not how many hits you get, it's when you get them that counts. So Lou was a heck of a player. But I love Lou as an, announcer, or as, as, as an announcer. I loved it. And the thing is that i got a kick out of Lou is that there'd be times where we'd be doing the game and one of the clubhouse guys would come up and tap me on the shoulder. And I'd turn my microphone off and they said, Ron, Lou needs a ride home. <laughs> we live close together. We live close together over in the Bellevue area. And Anita, his wife had enough. She took the car and went home and <laughs> Lou was on his own. <laughs> so I had, I had to bring, I had to bring Lou home and, and he would, he would tell me things about the game and what went on that there's no way I could put that on the air. But I, I just I loved, I love those times, especially when the when the meritor did not play well, because he kept banging on my dashboard. and I thought he was going to break the dashboard <laughs> a few times. And he had a couple of sayings in the, in the, that I really got a kick out of. Do you see what I see? You know. He says, Or am I right or am I right?
4: That's right?
3: And finally one time he got both of those in the same sentence. He says, Do you see what I see? Am I right or am I right? And then he proceeded to you know, proceed to go. The one thing Lou would do with me all the time is I, I would get to the ballpark two o'clock in the afternoon and Lou would be sitting there at his desk and figuring out the lineup. And he turns around and he throw the pencil down on the desk. He says now, how do they expect me to win with a team like this? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, let me ask you this. Would you rather have their first baseman or our first baseman? Would you rather have our second baseman or their second baseman? And he went around the entire field. And I had to be honest with him. A lot of times, yeah, I'd rather have five of their teams, players versus the five on, on the Mariners, or sometimes it was even six <laughs> when we played the real good ball clubs. And, and. He says, "Well, see what I mean." He says, "If they could get me a left-handed, or a, a, a left fielder, and a left-handed starting pitcher, I can take this team to the World Series." And he, was, he he meant that, but at that particular time, the Mariners had a budget and they had to stay within it. And of course, Lou was accustomed to being around the Yankees, where they turn around and says, "Okay, it would cost a million or two million, or we got to get rid of this player." That the Yankees went ahead and did it because they had all the money in the world, but the Mariners didn't have that kind of money. And they couldn't make those kind of trades, and they couldn't ruin their minor league system. Uh, and so the Mariners couldn't couldn't make the moves Lou would like to have him make. So after a game on a Sunday or something, he would, I'd go in the clubhouse to wait for the crowd to kind of leave the ballpark, and he says, what are you doing for dinner? I said, nothing. He said, come on, let's go. So he would invite a couple, of two or three of the coaches to go along with us, and we went somewhere in Seattle, and he'd, we'd sit down there, and we ordered a couple of cocktails before dinner and then we had some wine and then maybe a drink afterwards and came time, time for the bill. He, he would turn around and says, we're going to put this on the ball club. If they won't get me a left fielder or a left-handed pitcher, we'll make them spend some money here at the, at the, at the steakhouse. So that was what, that was one of the things that he did and then, then laughed like mad. He thought that was funny. Probably drove the front office a little crazy, but that's what he did.
2: Well, folks can uh, read about all these uh, declassified stories at this point uh, in uh, your new book, "Fairly At Bat: My 50 Years in Baseball from the Batter's Box to the Broadcast Booth." Ron, this has been a real treat. This is so kind of you to join us. This we have we have had a ball. Thank you so much. Well,
3: jo- but, yeah. The, well, the book's available at uh, Barnes and Noble or uh, Amazon or iTunes.
2: Uh, that's where you can pick it up. I
3: think you're going to get a few laughs out of it because there are things that that happened over the period of years that. Uh, uh, with guys like Yogi Bear, for example. Mm. Uh, we were around the batting cage one day uh, taking extra batting practice, and Yogi was watching, and Tom Sieber walked by, and he said, uh, Yogi, what time is it? And Yogi said, right now? Tom says, no, tell me what time it was 20 minutes ago, and I'll figure it out. <laughs> so, so we just did little, little kind of quips like that that they're all through the book.
2: Ron, this
0: has been a blast. Thank you so much. All right, any time, fellas. From the stretch, Garcia's 1-0 pitch is swung on, hit well to center field. Griffey going back. He's at the track. He leaps, and he makes the catch. Holy cow, he got it. (laughs) Oh, my. He got it. He took a home run away from Gonzalez. And side retired. One of the better catches by Griffey.
1: Well, time now for Voices of the Game as the Mariners get ready to take on the White Sox here at U.S. Cellular Field and a chance to sit down and talk with our broadcast partner. He's been around with the Mariners for 14 years, 27 years as a broadcaster in the big leagues. Ron Fairley is going to be stepping away at the end of this season, 48 years in the game of baseball, 21 as a player in the major leagues. And Red, after playing and doing so well as a player for twenty one years in the major leagues how in the world did you get involved in broadcasting baseball
0: Well, it was really kind of funny because i was getting ready to go to spring training uh... back in nineteen seventy eight and gene autry the owner of the angels and the owner of ktla in in los angeles came to me and said ron would you consider doing the nightly news and doing the broadcast for the games for the Angels, uh, and I said yes because you know, at that particular time, having played in the major leagues for 20 years, uh, your your future to play another 20 years is not very good. <laughs> you know, You can't go 40, huh? No, I, I can't. I, I, I'm not. I, Come on, I can't go 40. And so I, I got to thinking about it, and I had a one-year contract at that time. And I, I thought, uh, well, yeah, I, yeah, I would have an interest in that. And so uh, I did a little audition tape uh, over at KTLA, and they came back about two or three days later, and they said, uh, fine, and they offered me a three-year contract. And so I'm sitting here, you know, I'm not, I'm, no, I don't want to get too smart. Three year, one, one year. year, three year, one, weighing one against the uh-huh. other, and I said, you know what? It's, maybe it's time that I, I go ahead and, 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 and take the uniform off and then go up in the booth. But I'm still around baseball. So uh, I thought a three-year contract was better than a one-year contract, and that was the
1: extent of my my logic there. There you go. Now, when you started off, were you the color analyst? I mean, you do both. You do play-by-play. You're outstanding at both the play-by-play and obviously the color because you played the game, you've been there, you've done that. When did you step in as the play-by-play guy? You
0: know, first of all, you have to learn how to keep score. I mean, because I was always on the field. I wasn't keeping a score. I was always in the ballgame. So, you, first of all, you learn to keep score. And so what I did when Dick Enberg was the, was the announcer, along with Don Drysdale, and so I would copy what Enberg wrote down in his score sheet. And then after the ballgame, I would ask him, why did you write this down and why did you put it on the score sheet in the position that you did? And so I started doing my score sheet every day the way Enberg did so that in the event that I had a chance to say well this guy has this or he has that I knew where to look on my score sheet to find it and then I learned how to keep score by basically drawing the game because uh, uh, you don't have time to write down a whole bunch of stuff as you well know so I basically kind of drew the game so that I could look at it and come back uh, uh, later on and recap an inning because I remember one game that I did Good God, I got so wrapped up, and I was doing the play-by-play, and I said, well, recap the inning. They scored about five or six runs, the Angels, in that inning. I looked down there, I hadn't written anything down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I, and I, they scored five.
0: And I said, well, uh, never mind. I said, uh, that particular time, I read Bob Star the radio. I said, Bob will recap the inning for you when we come back after this timeout.
1: <laughs> so you've done both. you have of course, color Analyst with the Mariners, and also... Uh, Uh, the play-by-play. As far as the preparation, is anything parallel with being a player and a broadcaster? I know how hard that you work, you prepare, you, you do great notes and and you get ready for a ball game. I think the biggest thing about broadcasting is prepare,
0: prepare, prepare. Uh, just like you do in the field, uh, yeah. you prepare when you wake up in the morning. You know who's pitching when you go to bed tonight. You know who you're going to be hitting off the next day. You know how he's pitched to you in the past. You know what pitch he's been trying to get you out with. I mean, so there's there's not a lot of secrets, uh, other than maybe if you've had a lot of hits, he's going to have to do something a little different. And if he keeps getting you out, then you have to do something a little bit different. But you have to prepare f- uh, for a broadcast, and people don't realize. I mean, there's some people who think we get to the game a half an hour before we go on the air, and you sit down and start right. talking. Yeah wrong I mean we're, we're at the ballpark uh, at two o'clock in the afternoon for a, a, a night game and so you, you're there four and five hours before the game you have a chance to go in the clubhouse talk to the players uh... from what they did the night before and, and you get a little bit of a background on that get why, why did you do this How how that turned out so that when you go on the air the following game that you are prepared to uh, to say whatever you want to say it took me almost five years of going to the ballpark and and feeling very comfortable when you go on the air because there's always that feeling in the background gee did i have enough information down
1: here on my scorecard to, to be able to talk about something that happens visiting with ron fairly our broadcast partner here on voices of the game ron when you broke in dick enberg and hank greenwald when you were with the uh, san francisco giants and now dave niehaus you you've worked with some Outstanding people in this game and the broadcasting end.
0: Well, there's also Bob Star, Bob Star, Bob Starthron and a burly broadcaster down there with the Angels and did the Rams football. Yeah, I had some guys that I, I would listen to the way that they would broadcast a game and and look at the way that they prepared. And yeah, you learn a lot from those guys. And and every one of them, they're fabulous, fabulous broadcasters. And people don't realize how really good they are until you see. Well, you 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 hear what the, the results are, and you say, "Gee, that sounds so easy." Well it's a lot of work it's a lot of work and I and I've been asked the one question can you ever broadcast a perfect game and I don't think you can Uh, I don't think you can for the very simple reason you don't know what's going to happen and when something very exciting happens uh... like for example the the Dodgers the other night when they hit four home runs in the ninth inning now how do you prepare for something like that but the but the point is I don't think you can broadcast a perfect game because if you knew it was going to happen you could set the situation and you could set the play up even better if you think think back on it exactly. so as far as i'm concerned no i don't think you can broadcast a, a perfect game but the guys that you mentioned
1: they come pretty close and red it's been announced today you and the mariners have announced that uh, this will be your final year in the broadcast booth 14 years broadcasting in both radio and television for the mariners 27 years as a broadcaster twenty one years as a major league player with a number of ball clubs red uh, what's going through your mind right now toward the end of the two thousand six season and why now
0: you know what Rick? uh... where have all the years gone it seemed like they just sailed right on by but you know i i've been thinking about this i've been talking with the ball club with randy adamak and and the ball club and you know you know what i have been at the playground uh... growing up as a young kid playing every day I have been at the ballpark my entire life. I don't feel as though I have ever had a job because I'm going to the ballpark and I'm going to the playground every single day. And I have uh, finally came to the conclusion, it's been on my mind, I came to the conclusion that maybe it's time to say goodbye. I have either played in or have broadcast 7,000 games.
1: And that's long enough. It's time for me to take my bat and ball and go home. (laughs) And what are you looking forward to? When you do head on back home, a chance to relax a little bit and look back on a wonderful career in baseball as a player and a broadcaster. I don't
0: have to go to the ballpark at two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't got notes. I don't have to do the notes. I don't have to you know worry about getting the lineup, the lineup changes, and all that. No, I tell you what, it, it, like, like I said, Rick. It, Good golly. Do you realize that all these years that I have been broadcasting, I travel around the country, I have had a chance to play with or have had the chance to talk about the greatest players in the last 48 years in this game of baseball. I go to the ballpark, right like you do. We sit up, we have a great seat, I talk about baseball, and I get paid. Now, you know what? That's not a job. (laughs) And
1: and like I said, it's been 7,000 games. That's enough. Well, 14 years, the last 14 years, with the Mariners in that broadcast booth, with Dave and myself, what have been some of the top moments uh, over the last 14 years for you to see this organization come along and get to the playoffs in 95 for the very first time and come so close?
0: You know, I, I think back with, uh, with, with the Mariners, uh, going to the Kingdome, uh, having all the empty seats, not having a very good ball club, Lou Pinello showing up, Changing the attitude of the players and watching the Tino Martinez, the Edgar Martinez, the Juniors, the Bone, uh, Randy, the big unit, and I, I, I don't know. I, I don't have time to mention all of the names. And watching them learn how to win ball games, and then all of a sudden everything came together in '95 when Edgar hit the double. Uh, watching the, the big unit, uh, like I said, Junior Bone hitting a home run. I, I got a particular for th- a lot of watching Jay hit his 300th home run there at, at Safeco Field. That 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 was a great night. Uh, junior when he hit home runs in eight consecutive games. There there are so many many really wonderful wonderful uh, memories that I have at uh, at the King Dome and of course at at, at Safeco Field. Uh, that those are the things that you don't forget.
1: What are you going to miss most about uh, about this game? I mean, you've had the chance to work with so many great broadcast partners, of course, Dave Niehaus, Bob Starr, uh, Dick Enberg, and uh, Hank Greenwald. Hank Greenwald. Yeah. So many quality people in this game.
0: Well, I'm going to miss that. You know, uh, probably the thing that I, I miss most of all, of, of all is that when you're a player, you're in the clubhouse, the things that happen in the clubhouse. Yeah. Some of the stuff is funny. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. I mean, that's that's funny stuff that happens And the right? broadcast booth. Well, well, yeah, yeah, Well, there are a few things that go on up there, up there too. And then when you take the uniform off, uh, you, you're not involved in much of the things that go on in the clubhouse. But being around those young athletes every single day, watching them mature as they work their way through their careers, it's it's really fun to see how the young players progress. Like Betancourt and Lopez this year. I mean, that's 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 a wonderful story. And uh, watching those two young uh, men uh, go out there. But I think that's probably going to miss being around the clubhouse. Mm-hmm.
1: Ron Fairley, I'll tell you what, yours has been a wonderful story. 48 years in the game of baseball. 21 as a player, 27 as a broadcaster, the last 14 with the Mariners. We are all going to miss you. We wish you the best. You have done it with style, with professionalism, with passion. You have been a great friend and a great broadcaster. Ron Fairley, we wish you all the best, and thanks a lot for being our guest.
0: Well, thank you. And like I said, it's time to take my bad ball and go home.
4: Okay, picture this.